Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jenny Kaplan. The midterms are just around the corner. So on top of our regularly scheduled narrative-style episodes, we're bringing you lightly edited interviews with experts, thought leaders, and people standing up to help women get elected. This week, I'm sharing my interview with Ashanti Golar. Ashanti is the political director of Emerge America, an organization that recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. She's also the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Okay, cool. So let's start off with something very easy. If you could just tell me your name, your title, and a little bit about what you do. I'm Ashanti Golar. I am the National Political Director for Emerge America. We recruit and train Democratic women to run for office through a signature 70-hour training program. And in this role, I oversee our strategic recruitment for seats because there are so many seats where there has never been a woman or a woman of color to serve. Our expansion into new states, we are currently in half the country. I oversee our partnerships with other organizations because we do not do this work alone and I also co-lead our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So I'd love to hear more about Emerge in terms of like its history and its mission. Emerge was started in 2002 with Emerge California and our president founder Andrea Ducille realized that she lived in this very progressive state and in this progressive city but when she looked around at the elected officials there weren't a lot of women who were elected to office, who were leading things, and that we needed to change that, particularly because women are 51% of the population. We believe we should be 51% of elected offices. I tell people we're just going for parity here. And she really wanted to support the Democratic Party in helping recruit and train women, particularly because she saw so many qualified women who should be running for office that didn't have the tools, the resources, sources to really bring everything together. And in 2005, Emerge America was created to replicate Emerge into other states. The fact is running for office is hard. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Running for office is also different for us. And then when we bring these women together, one of the things we found out early on is that they form a sisterhood. So when they're running for office, they already have women who are there rooting for them, who want them to succeed. So we provide this powerful network of women across the country who are willing and wanting to support other women who are running. Tell me more about your story. Where did you grow up? What was your path to where you are today? So for me, I tell everyone I was really one of those weird kids where I was like, why watch Sesame Street when you can watch C-SPAN? You know, people are arguing, they care about their country. But when I watched C-SPAN, I noticed there weren't a lot of people that looked like me who were on the floor, who were making laws, and that just stuck with me from a very early age. 
And when I went to high school, I had a really great government teacher who was super political, and she made sure that all of her students were registered to vote when they turned 18. You got extra credit for volunteering on campaigns, and that's when I really got the bug that I liked politics and started volunteering a lot, which led me to being involved with college Democrats and young Democrats and the Democratic Party in Nevada. But what really made me come along this path is our government teacher had someone who was running for office come and speak. And I asked him a question about why he didn't vote to raise the minimum wage. And he had lied to me and said that he did vote to raise it, not realizing there was this wonderful thing called the internet and I could check his voting record. And it insulted me a lot. I was like, is it because I'm young and I can't vote? Is it because I'm a girl? So I knew even though I couldn't vote, I could absolutely volunteer. So I volunteered for his opponent, and his opponent beat him that year by less than 500 votes. And that's when I truly saw the power that people have in politics. Just at the volunteer level, even when you can't vote, you can still talk to other people that vote. And just through being involved in politics, I got connected to Emerge in Nevada. I'm one of the co-founders of Emerge Nevada back in 2006. And I, I'm very much, you know, one of those people who's blessed to be able to do what they love as a career. But that also means like, you know, your hobby and what you love, when it's your career, you're always working. But I'm fine with that. I was at the Democratic National Committee. I was the National Deputy Director of Community Engagement, the Director of African American Engagement. And I made sure my work always had a focus on women because women are the base of the Democratic Party. But there was always an area where I can help women, and that is when they wanted to run for office. And that did not sit well for me, particularly being someone who was in that position, because other women uplifted me and they supported me. And here I was telling other women I couldn't help them. So I decided that my next job had to be with getting women politically and civically engaged. Two days after I decided that, Emerge posted a job description for a political director. <laughs> and it was the only job I applied for, I received it, and now I get to do this wonderful work every day advocating for women in politics in different ways. Yeah, I definitely get the, when you do what you love, it turns into your whole life thing. <laughs> and I understand also that you've founded the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. What was your inspiration and what's its mission? I love the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. I didn't expect for it to take off the way that it did, but there was really two reasons behind doing it. The first is being in this role, doing what I do, you have a lot of young women who want advice. And I felt bad that, you know, I couldn't always talk to everyone or email everyone and give them the attention that they needed. So I tried to think of an outlet where I could really start to help mentor and support the next generation of young women of color you know, that wanted to be involved in politics. But then also talking to my girlfriends in politics who are women of color, it's hard. You have lots of struggles and difficulties and we also don't have an outlet to share how we overcome those struggles and difficulties, but also realizing we have each other and lots of women of color don't have someone that they can reach out to. So I thought a blog would be a great way just to start helping women of color who were in politics, who were interested in politics. And I gathered some of my other friends and we just started doing the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. 
where we share news, events, we talk about our stories. Our last series was about being the only brown girl in the room. You know, what happens when you are the only woman of color in a space. And my blog focused particularly on being the only brown girl in the room when you're talking about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's been our most popular series to date. And just doing the Brown Girls Guide, I realized there hadn't even been a political blog dedicated to women of color. So I'm just glad that we have it up there and women have some place to go to see something that is for them by people that look like them. I feel like it's so fitting right now because we are at this point with this election, this moment in history where there are a record number of women running for office and a record number of women of color. And I wonder what you think about this moment. What do you think inspired these women to step up and run? Now, so many people say, oh, this is such a wave of women running, but I don't call it a wave. It is a movement. You have lots of women who got inspired, you know, after the 2016 election. They realized that they were good enough and smart enough to run for office. You had women who were inspired by the Me Too movement to get up and start making change in their communities. But particularly for women of color, we're always looked to as voters. You know, oh, you want to engage the women of color to come vote for you. But the fact is, we shouldn't just be the voters, we should be the candidates. Our name should be on the ballot? Why are we constantly volunteering for everyone else? Why are we helping write their policy that benefits communities of color? We should write the policy and enact it ourselves when we're in elected office. I knew this time would always come. I'm glad it's, you know, come much sooner than I thought that it would. But this is amazing because when we talk about democracy, we always say we want a reflective democracy. But that doesn't just mean men and women. That means women of color, women from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. That's how you create a reflective democracy, when your elected officials actually look like the country. And that's what's happening. You know, our elected officials, they look like us, they talk like us, and we're excited about it. What do you think is different about this year's election compared to previous elections? How has the landscape shifted for women running, for women of color running, for people of color running? What's changed? It's a whole new playing field. We were actually talking about this in the office. I've never seen anything like this, but it's so energizing. And the thing that I love is that women are embracing being women. You have ads where women are breastfeeding. You have women openly talking about their experiences with sexual assault and domestic violence. They are talking about how being a woman will make them different from their opponents. And you also have people who are willing to vote for people that don't look like them. And this is something I argue about a lot now because particularly when it comes to people of color, people want to say people of color can only represent people of color. They have to run in districts of color. And that is just absolutely not true. People of color have the exact same experience, knowledge, know-how to run for office. And they can represent people who don't look like them. Because at the end of the day, you can find common ground with people. Just seeing that whole myth just being thrown out the window, that makes me very happy. Why do you think it's changed? I mean, what do you think has changed here that's made it so that that flawed logic no longer sits with people? 
people feel that their elected officials have failed them and they are paying way more attention. They're doing their own research. They're looking at their platforms. They're going to their debates, their town halls. They're actually reading, you know, what happens in the news. Social media has made it so that the candidates are more accessible. In some ways, that's good. In some ways, you know, that's bad, particularly for women who get harassed. People are paying more attention and they're just not going to say, well, well, this person comes from a political family. This person has a lot of money in their war chest. Oh, well, you know, this person knows that person. People are making their own decisions about the candidates. And you have seen so many upsets, you know, this year, particularly by women, by women of color who have beat out the endorsed candidate who had two, three times as much money in their account. It's because people want to elect people who are going to get things done. And that's been a big shift. And we're seeing just this new wave of people stepping up who are like, look, I'm an average everyday citizen like you, and I know things are bad. And I know that I, I can change them. So listen to me, this is what I wanna do when I'm in elected office. And people are listening to them and they're voting for them. And in November, we're gonna see a lot of new faces in elected offices across this country. It's so exciting and it really does feel like there's been a shift. But also I know that it is still difficult for women and particularly for women of color. And I'm wondering if you could just tell me about what you see as the obstacles for women and women of color. In politics, the default candidate is always the straight white man. That is what people go to. They feel that he's going to be most electable. It's just a fact. That's why when it comes to political power, white men have the most political power in this country because they're the majority of elected officials because that's who people deem as the candidate, the status quo, you know, the people that should be representing us. When it comes to a woman, a lot of times the first thing that they're asked is, well, what are your qualifications? And a woman can say, oh, well, you know, I've been a dean of a university, you know, I've worked at so-and-so law firm and it's never enough. Whereas like a white male candidate can only have been a teacher and it's like, this guy is the best educational leader we've ever seen and people will want to support him. Women face the extra scrutiny of having a family or not having a family. People will weigh that into them. It's also a lot harder to raise money, you know, particularly for women of color because they're not considered to be viable candidates. And I hate that word, but people look at them, they're like, well, will the voters vote for them? Well, will donors give them money? How would they do on a debate stage? They get all of that extra scrutiny and then people also just think that they won't be able to relate that they're not what the district needs but at the end of the day the only people who know what a district needs are the people in the district with women there's just all of these extra you know obstacles organization that is put on them and i tell our women particularly our women of color if they listen every time you know some jerk told them, oh no, you shouldn't run for office, it's not your time, wait your turn. We would never have any women or women of color in office. So, you know, don't ask permission, don't wait your turn, just run. How does being a woman and a person of color, how does it combine? How do you see those challenges on top of each other? 
It is definitely, you know, the bad double whammy, you know, as I like to call it, because people are already seeing you as a woman, but then they're also seeing you as a woman of color, which means that they have a lot of biases. They have a lot of preconceived notions and that hurts women of color a lot. You have to be three, four times as good as everyone else just to get taken seriously. And when you do win your primary, you do win your election, you still have to face extra scrutinization when you're in elected office. Talking to women of color, they will say all the time, well, someone told me that I need to talk differently. I need to wear my hair differently. You know, the way I dress isn't appropriate. Uh, for our women of different religions, you know, they still feel no one will vote for a Muslim woman. We know that is totally being proven wrong. You are definitely seen as a lesser than candidate. What I hear our women tell us all the time is the small things that everyone has in their life people will amplify them to make a woman of color not credible. Like parking tickets, everyone has parking tickets, but for a woman of color, that means that she's irresponsible. What I tell those women is that the things that they are telling you makes you not electable, you know, not a credible candidate, those are strengths. Those are the things that make you relatable to other people. All of those things are assets and that their lived experiences, particularly as women of color, that allows them to bring things to the table that other people can't. And it gives them a different viewpoint to all of the policies and issues that are facing their community. This is kind of a basic question, but I really think it's important to ask, why are there so few women in office? You know, there are several things. I've talked to women who are just fine being behind the scenes, helping everyone else out, which is great. And a lot of women feel that elected office may not be for them. So they serve on boards or commissions, which is also great. You have a lot of women who are waiting for the right time to run, but I tell them there's never ever going to be any perfect time to run for office. Then also we need more women realizing that their voices have to be heard in elected office. So many women, you know, when I show them slides of a room full of like white men making healthcare decisions, they're shocked. But that happens every single day across the country. There are no women in that room. There are no women of color in that room. So I think as we continue to talk more to about the benefits that we get as a society when we have more women in office, we're more collaborative and consensus driven. You know, we're just there to get things done. A lot of people say that women care about women's issues, but at the end of the day, the things that they care about, paid family leave, health care, better taxes, parks, education, these are family issues. These are community issues. These are things that everyone cares about. And when women are there, they introduce more bills and they co-sponsor more bills around them. Research has just shown that in cities where there's more women in elected office, the quality of life is higher and the infant mortality rate goes down. That's what happens when you have women in leadership. So I think as we continue to have these conversations and let them know there is a place for them, it's never too late and there is always a space for you, be it 
as a volunteer, as campaign staff, on a board or commission, in an elected office, as a staff to an elected official. We need women in all of these roles. And that's when we start to really see a bigger impact. Right. And this movement this year, it's more than women who are running. It's also, it feels like a real swell of activism. How do you think that that's changed over time in terms of those people who aren't running, but they are stepping up to get involved? So I actually tell people when they're like, oh, I'm just an activist. I'm a volunteer. I'm not, you know, cut out to run for elected office. The best elected officials are those who started out as activists, because when you're an activist, That means you stand for something and you care for something and you are fully committed to it. You love it. And wouldn't it be great if you could actually pass laws about that thing that you love so much? Uh, One of my favorite candidates this cycle is Lucy McBath, who's running for Congress in Georgia 6. Her son is Jordan Davis. He was the young man who was killed for playing music too loud in his car. And Lucy will tell you that before that, she was a mom, she was a wife, she was a stewardess, and it rocked her whole world. And she became a gun violence prevention activist for Moms to Men Action. Then she also became a close political advisor to a lot of elected officials around gun violence prevention. And Shannon Watts, who's the head of Moms to Men, she called me one day and she said, Shanti, I know you're going to be in Georgia. I want you to sit down with Lucy and convince her to run for office. And we had a two-hour conversation about her running for office. And I let her know if she decided to run for office, Emerge would train her. And just through that, you know, she was able to see that there was so much more to do. And she started off running for the state house. I was super excited. And she called me in February and said that she knew she could make a bigger impact running for Congress. And she got into that race super late, but she still won the primary. And this all, it came out of tragedy, but she has become such an influential person. She is someone who has moved from activist to candidate. So just for women to know that that one thing that's driving you, let it drive you to do more, to be an elected official. Activists, our voices are great. We need activists in this country, but we also need activists sitting behind the dais and at the desk making those laws. How do you think the parties differ when it comes to candidates? When it comes to women women of color, women who are running, but also women as a whole. How do the parties cater differently? But we have to realize that even both political parties, we can't go to the default of like the straight white man, particularly the straight white man who can fund his own campaign. We have to do more at building the bench too, because we just focus a lot on Congress. But at the end of the day, The people who sit in Congress, they started off at the state and local level. And that's why we concentrate a lot on this at Emerge, the city councils, the county commissions, the school board, the water board, sheriff, judges, prosecutors, those law enforcement positions. We're doing a lot of work on those at Emerge to get more women in law enforcement. If you look at prosecutors right now, 90% of prosecutors in this country are white men. And we wonder why our criminal justice system is the way that it is. But the fact is you can't change the criminal justice system without changing the faces of criminal justice reform, which means you have to have more women, particularly women of color, in those roles. So overall, I think in general, the political parties, you know, they can do a lot better. Women aren't just voters. We deserve our seat at the table, too. Even with the challenges that the Democratic Party faces, it seems like 
it's certainly doing better than the Republican Party. I'm wondering why you think that is, why you think the Republican Party has comparably so few women running and women in office. You know, it's very interesting because I've done a few panels with Republican women. And when we talk about this, for them, they're like, being a woman, that doesn't make me a better candidate than a man. And I don't need to be on a campaign trail talking about how I'm a woman to get more voters. There's still a lot of patriarchy you know, in the Republican Party. Whereas with the Democratic Party, our women were a lot more vocal and outspoken. We're like, look, we're the base of the Democratic Party and women of color, we're, we say particularly black women, we're the base of the base of the Democratic Party. You know, it's time to listen to us and to hear us. I do firmly believe there is more support on the Democratic side to see more women running for office. You hear that from our party leaders. On the Democratic side, if you want to talk about, you know, who are all the big name candidates, the Democrats, you know, are mentioning the cycle. It's a lot of women and frankly, like a lot of women of color. How has your personal experience in politics changed over time as a woman of color? Oh boy. (laughs) I think I wrote about this a lot in my blog for the Brown Girls Guide. I think you, you grow, you evolve, you develop a thicker skin. Even with my friends, you know, we're the bestest of friends but the way we even approach politics is different. I have one friend who she's like very quick to cut you off and let you know about yourself. Whereas for me, I'm very much, let me think about that for a moment and get back to you. It takes some time to find yourself. And I tell that particularly to young women, they look at me now, but I'm like, I was not this person 10 years ago. I was not this person five years ago. You grow a lot. And I think it's important to figure out who do you want to be in politics? What is your niche going to be? You know, what are the things that you care about? So I think for my experience, it has been, you know, good, a lot of growth, but I also realized a lot of that is due to the fact that I was able to have a lot of women political mentors to be there for me, you know, some very notable women who trailblazed the path for me to even sit here doing this interview with you today. That has shaped my experience a lot. So I'm not at the point where I wanna pay it forward and help the next generation of young women have a good experience in politics. Since you're so immersed in this world, I wonder what the most interesting or compelling or surprising research or news about women candidates or politicians, you know, that you've seen recently that you've come across that you think we should really be paying attention to? My answer for this is always the same, millennial women. I I love them. I love them. I love them. The reason why I love them so much is they're not waiting for anyone to ask them to run for office. They are just doing it they see an opportunity in their communities and they are going for it. And I feel that a lot of the policy changes that we wanna see in this country, they're gonna be the generation to get it done. And then I look at the Parkland students. These kids just never seen anything like it. Not only how they had their tragedy at their school, but also saying we realize that we're getting this attention because of what we look like and where we live, but there are other students across the country 
who are facing the exact same experiences and talking to them and bringing them in and to do this tour that they did this summer where they're holding elected officials accountable. We definitely need to be keeping an eye out on this next generation. It's just so inspiring to listen to these young kids who are standing up and really using their voices. I had an ounce of that when I was 17, you know? Exactly. What advice do you have for me and for us as we're doing this? What wisdom do you have to share? I tell everyone, find your niche, find a way to get involved. There is something for everyone to do, even if it's just donating $5 to a woman candidate. That adds up and it can mean a lot. No act is too small. Even if you just tweet about something that a great woman said who's running for office, you never know who's going to see that and how they may be inspired to get more involved in politics or support that candidate. But my main thing is be vocal. Now is the time to say everything that's on our mind. Put it out there because people are relying on us to be complacent or get complacent. And we can't let that happen. We just have to keep resisting and fighting to get our country to be the country that we want it to be. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. If you didn't, or if you have suggestions for how we can improve, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan. Follow us on Instagram at WMN.media or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. We'll be back on Thursday with a regular episode featuring another inspiring candidate. Talk to you then.